Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. Today, I have a pretty cool guest, Daniel Faber, um, serial entrepreneur in the, um, the space industry, actually. Uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about deep space industries and some of the other initiatives that, uh, initiatives that Daniel's working on. So, Daniel, how are you doing? Yeah, really good. Thanks, Richard. It's uh, great to be here. Yeah, thanks. So, can you give uh, listeners a little bit of your background to start? Yeah, sure. I've spent uh, a couple of decades now working in the, in the space industry. I decided when I was at university that uh, it would be a good thing for the world to get people off Earth, address a number of existential risks, and uh, and probably have an interesting life at the same time. And uh, being in Australia, there was no space agency and no big uh, uh, space company. So I decided that probably meant starting companies myself. And uh, and so I started a few companies and, and had an interesting time and got a, a bit of a grasp of where the space industry is going. And it's a it's an extremely exciting time to be in this industry right now. Hey, you said you want to get people off Earth. Um, let's start with that. Why why would you say that? It's kind of a strange thing to say. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I was looking at what I could do to 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 be to be useful in the world, I guess, and. Uh, uh, because I could do math and I can integrate to infinity and end up with a uh, an extraordinarily large number. Um, existential risks seemed like, uh, if not the most uh, the most interesting and the most important things to to investigate. Um, and if uh, if there's a risk to humanity, no matter how small, um, yeah, that's that's worth considering. And I thought there uh, there are risks to humanity and there are non-trivial. And so. That's uh, that's what I decided to to spend my life looking at, and uh, and so if we can get people off Earth, then uh, then we address a number of existential risks, or, or at least reduce the risks considerably, and uh, and so that's sort of the the base of my motivation. Um, and then uh, you know reducing that is to you know, how do you how do you create a, a thriving civilization that is interplanetary and uh, and could support itself in uh, in case of of worst case situations, uh, and the only way that I could see that that would really take off. I mean, the government does a great job of sending people to space for six months and bringing them back home again. But if we actually want people to stay there, I believe there has to be a profit uh, incentive. And as soon as there's a profit incentive, it becomes inevitable. It becomes unstoppable. Companies will go out and they will try to make money and they will create permanent jobs and then people will start living there. And if you look at the Earth, where where people are living in, in remote places and inhospitable places, and places that you might consider are terrible to live, even if they they can also be um, visually inspiring. But the middle of the desert isn't a great place to live. But anywhere that there's a permanent job created, there are people living. And so this is this is the thing that I think will will drive us to, um, to to colonize the solar system is just a perpetual creation of permanent jobs and an economy and an expansion in that manner. So what are, what are some of the uh, big risks? You see, uh, facing humanity if they if we only stay on Earth. Um, yeah, I mean, some of them uh, are talked about, like a meteorite strikes or or and things like that. Uh, others are uh, the gray goo of nanotechnology. There's a, a lot of situations that uh, the science fiction authors like to write about. Um, 
you know, perhaps the uh, explosion of artificial intelligence is, is one that is uh, more on people's minds these days and one that is actually hard to, uh, um, to, to consider that getting off Earth will, uh, will be a big impediment to that risk. But um, there's a lot of things that, that, uh, that it does address. And so, you know, these are the, the doomsday scenarios for, for humanity and for civilization. And, uh, and it's, it's worth taking some time to consider them because the consequence, okay. uh, of course, is, uh, is the loss of humanity for all of time. And, uh, and therefore, while, uh, a, uh, a large investment immediately may not be warranted, definitely a small investment is. And, uh, and that's what I, what I started looking at. Um, looking at, at that the other way, if we can turn that from a, a small investment, uh, and create a, a situation where the, the solution to some of these or the mitigation of some of these risks is actually a, uh, a profit-making enterprise, then it becomes inevitable that they will be mitigated. And so by reframing that and considering how to, um, how to make, you know, for example, permanent jobs offer a, uh, a profitable enterprise, then, uh, then that, that I think is, is probably the only way to really truly address this. And so, uh, and so that's what I've, uh, I've spent my life looking for is, is how to create profitable business models to have people working permanently off of. Um, where will we go if we do have to leave Earth in, in any sort of, uh, large numbers? I mean, I don't think <laughs> so, so that, people that, could fit on the space station. Yeah. Well, that, that to me is actually, uh, a little less relevant than the question of how we get there. And I, and I let the question of how we get there determine where we would go. My money at the moment is on living in free space. Uh, the International Space Station is is quite small. Um, it's quite expensive. It's, uh, it took quite a long time to build. Um, again, a, a, a profit motive, a commercial imperative to do this uh, is going to create new and interesting solutions. And I think that building cities in space is uh, just a, a couple of decades away. Uh, Jeff Bezos talks about having millions of people living in space, and I think he's he's on the right track. Now that said, I don't mind if people want to, to colonize Mars or the Moon or, or what have you. But um, but my view is that the free space is actually a larger and more hospitable location. It's not at the bottom of a gravity well. There are enormous resources available from the asteroids, and uh, and there's just a, a lot of space to live and, and create opportunities. But all of that is almost irrelevant compared to how do you create the, the question of how to create the first permanent job? How do we get from zero to one? On permanent jobs in space, because once you have one and you start to have people living there, the rate of innovation on on how to work in microgravity and how to use that for microgravity for a um, new industrial uh, enterprises and the like will just explode. But we have to get to the point where we have somebody in space first. As soon as we have one person living in space and they're not expecting to come back, and if you were up there for ten years, you would start fixing things that you didn't like. At the moment, the toilets on the International Space Station are terrible, absolutely terrible. I heard the whole place just stinks. Trust me, within a, within a month, somebody who knows they're living there for 10 years, they will be tackling that problem and, and probably have it solved. You've just got to give them time to do it, the incentive to do it. And maybe we let them keep royalties, but I tell you, even that doesn't matter. If they know they're, they're stuck there with a bad toilet for 10 years, their attention will go towards that. Their attention will go towards a lot of things that will help improve life in space. And almost immediately, you start to see changes. Um, it seems like the top things will be food and water, uh, you know, to live any length of time in space. How are we going to address those two issues? Because you know, 
if Earth has a problem, where are we going to get those things from? Yeah, and as uh, as I've gone through my career, I started looking at technology as well. And um, you know, my first jobs were, were building satellites in space. And uh, and you know, I started working on some more uh, advanced technologies that could address the kind of things that you're talking about. At the end of the day, I realized that none of that is relevant. What is relevant is how do you get the revenue to pay to keep someone in space? Everything else will take care of itself as people start to attack the various costs in order to create other businesses um, that, that are doing things like providing food and providing water. And so from a, a revenue perspective, you can ask, how are they going to earn money to justify keeping somebody up there? Because that's not going to be cheap to start with until we've done a lot more technology development. So how do we justify this enormous cost? You need to have something that generates reasonable revenue. And so that's why I got into the asteroid mining game with looking at um, you know, could we extract material and bring that back to the Earth? We realized that wasn't going to be profitable at any time in the future, but also realized that there was a market for selling material in space that was water propelled for, for spacecraft to move around, uh, perhaps 3D printer feedstock, these kinds of things. Because it costs so much to launch things off the ground, it created a very high price for materials that are already available in orbit. And so that was the, the basis for, for deep space industries and the business model that we built has a, uh, the, the goal once mining starts is to, to make a material available in Earth orbit. So you ask, where will we get the water and where will we get the food? I think we'll, we'll derive those from material that's already in the asteroids, which we can bring back to Earth orbit, where the first, uh, you know, the first jobs, the first habitats are going to be created. Um, some of the companies that I've spoken to are ones that are going to be mining asteroids for materials, um, where do you think, again, is going to be the major source of, you know, simple stuff, water and food, and then eventually, you know, we'll talk about the profit motor right after that. But. <laughs> yeah, sure. So um, I think the asteroids are the most prospective for the raw materials. You're not at the bottom of a gravity well. There's a lot of asteroids out there. Uh, they contain all the materials, water, hydrocarbons that uh, uh, that we'd need. To, 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 for example, grow food, 3D print structures, fill them with air and water, um, you know, the propellants to move around, everything like that is, is available in the asteroids and, and readily available. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's why uh, I also got into the asteroid mining business and, uh, and started looking at that. The, um, you know, the, the thing to realize from asteroid mining, the early market for the material is propellants, uh, about 50% of everything that's launched from the ground is propellant. We spend about uh, 5 to $10 billion a year is spent on launch vehicles around the world, which means that it's something like a $3.5 billion a year market for propellant in orbit. Uh, that's, a, that's a nice market to start with. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, all right, so you said water and hydrocarbons are available up there. Um, you know, again, what about food? Where would, that, where would that come from? Would we make it out of something else? I mean, what do you... I think we'll, where do you I guess think we'll grow it. Yeah, I think we'll grow it. I think okay. that uh, we, we've already grown plants in, in zero gravity. Uh, we also know that, that zero gravity doesn't have to be, uh, you know, we don't have to, to commit ourselves to zero gravity. If you rotate a structure, you get a centripetal force that uh, that acts as gravity. Um, and so you can grow things in a in a, a variable gravity field. You choose your own gravity. Uh, there's a lot of sunlight available. We've talked about water. Uh, you know, hydrocarbons, we need carbon, we need nitrogen, we need you know, phosphorus, we need all these, these elements, they're all available in the asteroids. So we'll be making uh, you know, dirt or nutrients from, uh, from asteroid material in a, in a very grand scale 
Uh, we'll also be recycling any material lifted from the ground. So there are a couple of different options as to where the raw materials can come from. But then we'll we'll be growing things in orbit. And what what kind of structures will we need to live in free space? You know, it sounds like that would be a much better alternative than trying to colonize, you know, Mars or some other planet or, or moon or asteroid. So the um, the, the structures uh, we we need rotating habitats so that we can create a gravity field. There's one thing we've learned from the International Space Station: it's don't put people in microgravity for long time, long periods of time. Um, but it's very easy to create a rotating structure with uh, you know partial gravity or even a full gravity um, at the periphery, and uh, and that means that all the technology we have on the ground will work quite easily in space, and we don't have to spend billions of dollars developing. Everything from microgravity environment, including the, the medical uh, issues. So we need rotating habitats. I think that's going to come very, very soon. Uh, it's very easy to make those, and so uh, and so all of this is is going to fall into place uh, once you have a rotating habitat and uh, and an incentive to uh, to reduce the input costs of launching food. People will immediately start to consider um, you know the highest density carbohydrate and protein production. And, uh, and so we'll be looking at plants um, or, or perhaps um, bacteria cultures and the like that can produce those most effectively uh, with the, the inputs of, of sunlight and nutrients that, that are available. Um, I know I've seen various concepts that at the moment none of those business pieces close because there's no incentive from um, the government agencies that are now currently doing the, uh, the largest um, human uh, activities. There's no incentive from them to dramatically reduce the cost in any uh, short amount of time. And so, you know, we just haven't seen that activity. There's also a limit on the funds that are available to be spent on that kind of uh, that kind of a thing. So, again, the, the timing has to be right for the development of these, but I think that they will all develop rapidly once the incentive's there. Well, you, you said there has to be a profit motive, which makes total sense. Where do you think um, the largest profits are going to be had? You know, not necessarily, well, I guess so. Jobs and companies. So, what do you so, think the largest profits are going to be had, and what, and then what kind of jobs? I guess jobs supporting those companies. Yeah. So, 20 years ago, I wrote down a list of all of the companies or all of the industries that I thought could generate sufficient revenues um, to support a, a permanent job in orbit, or, or more than one, um, and uh, and would have a, a requirement for somebody in orbit. And I only came up with a list of three. Um, because communications and remote sensing, which are the two exports of the space industry at the moment, they're both handled by robots, um, so they were off the list. But I could see that space-based solar power, tourism, and mining were the three that could likely do this. Uh, having done the math, if you want to build a power station in space, you really need to have material mined from an asteroid or elsewhere rather than launch from the ground, otherwise the economics doesn't work. So that left tourism and mining, which is why I, I went down the path of mining. Um, now, having realized that the early mining is going to be run by robots anyway, um, and that the market is in space, not on the ground, so it's not creating a, uh, an export, a new export market, um, I think that the, uh, the folks working on tourism will probably have the, uh, uh, the, cre- the pleasure of creating that first job. And it's going to be you know, the janitor, the electrician, the plumber, the guy who keeps the lights on, uh, but he's also going to have to bake the bread and roll out the red carpet and and teach the, uh, the the tourists how to to handle themselves in a in a rotating spacecraft or a, or a microgravity environment, um, and he's going to have to be the the, the host uh, of that station. 
and that one very talented guy is going to, to have that first permanent job in space. But there's a couple of other options that have risen in the meantime. Um, you know, over the last 20 years, thankfully, the world has not been stagnant. There are now a couple of options for manufacturing things in space for sale on the ground that, um, that, that are becoming very interesting to the point where the cost of launch and return actually is a, uh, um, you know, a reasonable cost of that business. And, and there's still uh, money-making enterprises. So uh, I'm involved with, with one of those companies looking at high-value product manufacturing on orbit. Uh, another option is, is entertainment, and, uh, and that's another of the companies that I'm working with. It's how to generate content to appeal to people on the ground that, uh, that requires an in-orbit component. And, uh, and so those, those are a couple of other options. So there's, there's three options that I think for potentials for creating a first permanent job in orbit. Uh, tourism, on-orbit manufacturing, and entertainment. Okay. What about uh, timescales? What do you guess is even possible for a substantial amount of people to uh, live in space, you know, permanently? So I think the, what are we talking the, about here? I think the first people living in space is is going to be relatively soon, and the, the tourism guys probably would be there already, except that the the shortage of human launches has driven the price up. So five or five or eight years ago, before the space shuttle was retired. The Russians were selling tickets for somewhere between $10 and $30 million a seat. Um, after the space shuttle was retired, the Russians realized they had a monopoly and that NASA was going to buy seats off them. So they did everything that they could to justify the highest possible price. Um, you know, excellent capitalists. They understand monopolistic pricing. So they jacked the price up to about $70 million a seat, which drove the, the space tourism market uh, quiet. Uh, it had to, to go on hold. Um, as new launch vehicles come online, and that the Chinese haven't commercialized their system yet, but uh, SpaceX is expected to come online soon. Blue Origin is working towards a system. Uh, the, the Boeing um, NASA-backed system is also possibly coming online. Those will drive the prices down, and especially the Russians, you know, you know they have the capacity to drop the price uh, to $10 million. And so it, it'll be interesting to see where the price goes. And while that's still more expensive than most people can afford, it's an interesting way to open the market. And once the market is open, the uh, the prices will start dropping, and so that that first job that I described before from the uh, the tourism perspective, you know, the, the the guy to keep the lights on and keep the tourist entertained and happy, uh, that can happen um, within a couple of years even of the uh, uh, the new launch vehicles coming online. Uh, I think that's quite possible, and so all of that is is looking like it might happen in the very early 2020s, um, you know, within five years. Oh. So, uh, so that's the that's the first job from the tourist side. Uh, from these these other directions, entertainment and and on orbit manufacturing, I think a similar timeline is possible. Now, this is before the asteroid mining is likely to to start returning significant quantities of material, uh, and so everything is going to have to lift, be lifted from the ground. It's going to be expensive, uh, and those business models will you know they they won't be sorry they'll become. You could consider they'll become more profitable or the prices will drop dramatically as on-orbit material becomes available, as some of the other technology advances that we see become more mature, like uh, satellite servicing and uh, 3D printing, uh, Mm. uh, immortal spacecraft, mega constellations of small satellites. Uh, A lot of these things are going to contribute to lowering the cost of doing operations in Earth orbit. Um, and, And so all of these things converge uh, on, a, on a sort of exponential, you know, the technology exponential, I think, is is just hitting the space industry. 
which is what makes it a particularly exciting time. There's a, a lack of entrepreneurs, um, but, but there's capital going into this industry and there's more and more entrepreneurs coming into the industry. And, uh, and so I see this as a, a really incredible time right now when, uh, when things are starting to change. But, so your question, sorry, was about when, when large numbers of people might be in orbit. I think once there's right. the first permanent jobs and once there start to be the services to support those people in space, you're going to see people considering space as a place to go for an extended length of time and uh, you know, the, the possibility of building families and things like that in space. Uh, it'll continue to be esoteric for a while. But I'd say the first real estate play in space, the first condominiums or, or something like that, um, is probably about 15 years away, about 10 to 15 years. And, and at that point, everything opens up. Interesting. Um, what resources are available in space in much larger quantities than on Earth, or does it just need to be essentially equal quantities? So I think that um, the Earth, when you consider how big it is, and its its diameter is about 13,000 kilometers, uh, this is a big rock we're sitting on. There are enormous amounts of resources in here. It's just that not a lot of them are accessible. Most of the uh, the metals have sunk to the core, and uh, because of the temperatures and the pressures, um, we, we have trouble digging below a few kilometers down. And so if you were to take the, the top few kilometers and, uh, of, of all of the continents on Earth and, and take all of that rock and bundle it into a sphere, it would just be a couple of hundred kilometers across. When we look at the near-Earth asteroids, we actually have more material than that available uh, in the asteroids that have that have wandered into orbits that are somewhat close to Earth, when you get out to the main belt asteroids, there's a million times as much material. So uh, John Lewis, the, the chief scientist of Deep Space Industries, and uh, the guy who wrote the book on asteroid resources, he's estimated that that the near Earth asteroids could support a hundred billion people at uh, you know a modern Western civilization level of uh, standard of living, and the main belt is a, is a million times that. Wow, it's crazy. Okay. Um, for people that are interested in learning more about um, initiatives and getting into space and maybe even getting involved, what are some of the ways that you know even regular people or engineers or uh, you know companies can get involved in this in this industry in the space industry and learn about it and do things with it? Yeah, and there's a lot of things available on the internet these days. That's that's how I got started. Um, I, there, there were definitely no courses at university when I was there that could teach me anything about the space industry. Uh, Australia just didn't have very much. Um, there's a lot more net going on nowadays. The barriers to entry have come down with microsatellites and nanosatellites. So people can just start in their garage to build a satellite if they if they so want. Um, you know, it's not free yet, but it is very cheap. So the um, you know, there are ways for technical people just to just to pick up a, a soldering iron and get started almost. But um, there's also a lot of, uh, I mentioned the biggest shortage is entrepreneurs, um, and there's a lot of opportunity. So for entrepreneurs, familiarize yourself with the space, um, and uh, you know, for budding entrepreneurs, find uh, find entrepreneurial companies to join to learn about what's happening. And at the moment, I'm looking for interns. I'm looking for people to join me in a, in a couple of startups. And uh, and I think that's prevalent across the space industry, that uh, you know, people are looking for talent. So uh you know, it's a good time to join the industry now. There's a lot of opportunities. Very good. Okay, and then to contact you, if you're willing, um, what are some ways that uh, people or companies can contact you and have a, <laughs> just start a dialogue about this? Yeah, sure. I mean, my name is Daniel Faber. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I uh, uh, my my contact details are there, and anyone who's persistent enough can can track me down. Um, 
you know, all of the tricks of, of getting someone's attention online apply and, uh, and you should be able to get through to me. Um, I'm on, I'm on Facebook under the name Heliocentric and, uh, that's another way to reach me. Uh, and perhaps you can, uh, you can put a link to, uh, to some of my, um, my online profiles, uh, on your website, uh, under this, uh, this podcast. Okay. Well, very good. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. Hey, I've, uh, I've really enjoyed this and I hope that, uh, um, that it all goes uh, goes well and gets to air, and uh, I hope that it uh, might even attract some more entrepreneurs into the industry. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. 